Hi there, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Michael Burlingame, the author of An American Marriage, The Untold Story of Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd. He's written over a dozen books on Abraham Lincoln. He holds the Naomi Lynn Distinguished Chair of Lincoln Studies at the University of Illinois at Springfield. Dr. Burlingame, thanks so much for being here from the land of Lincoln. Well, actually, I'm not in the land of Lincoln at the moment. I, the pandemic has had me grounded in Connecticut for, for the past year. I spent half the year in Springfield and half the year in Connecticut, but I spent the entire year in Connecticut because of the darn pandemic. Well, the next time we do a talk with you, I, I know you've got another book out. We'll make sure you're in the land of Lincoln when we do this. I, I will be at that time, yes. Before um, we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Presidential marriages can be a subject of intense fascination in the United States. The Obamas, the Clintons, the Kennedys, plenty of ink has been spilled. Lots of people have spent hours and hours on TV talking about those marriages. Scholars often dissect them for clues as to how marriage shapes the presidency. Examples of that, the Carters, the Reagans, the Roosevelts of FDR and Eleanor, the Wilsons. But the Lincolns are a special case because they were tabloid fodder, along with being political fodder for scholars now 150 years later even. Dr. Burlingame argues that not only was Lincoln melancholy about his responsibility as president, but that his marriage may have been a big part of that. You've written one of the most well-known biographies of Abraham Lincoln, lots of words in that one, lots of pages. But when did you decide we must know more about his relationship with his wife um, and have a whole book dedicated to that. In other words, why does it matter to overturn these stones 150 years later? Well, I have uh, written fairly extensively earlier about the Lincoln marriage. My first book, which came out in 1994, was called The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln. It's a series of psychological essays about his relations with his parents and his children and his uh, wife and his depressions and all that sort of thing. And, uh, there was a long chapter, the longest chapter in that was about the marriage. And I had uncovered a great deal of fresh new information. Uh, and it became a national news story. I was, I was quite astonished. It was an AP um, top of the uh, list story. And it was Rush Limbaugh read excerpts of, <laughs> online. And um, it was uh, the CBS Morning News covered. I couldn't believe it. There's 1600 footnotes in a 400 page university press book. But anyway, um, so uh, so that made something of a splash. Uh, and, 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 and as I say, a lot of people, I said in the introduction to that book, a lot of people may not agree with my interpretations of the evidence that I adduce, but there's an awful lot of evidence here. And if you want to deal with the subject, you really have to deal with these. Um, and uh, then when I published my big 2000 page biography, Abraham Lincoln Life, I had more information. Um, uh, and I had, one of the reasons that I, I was able to write so much fresh about the Lincoln marriage is that while I was doing my books, I was interested in all aspects of Lincoln's life. And so I, I did research here, there, and everywhere, all around the country and all kinds of newspapers and archives and the like. Um, 
with, uh, and so I cast a very broad net. And somebody who was just setting out to do a book on the marriage wouldn't have done that kind of research so, so widespread. And so I, I discovered a lot of information in places that you wouldn't normally think to go in order to find out information about the marriage. And it, and so in any event, I have a lot of information about the marriage in the first book, um, The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln, and in the second book, Abraham Lincoln, A Life, but if you're really interested in the Lincoln marriage, you probably want to go to a relatively modest single volume. And you wouldn't go to a book with a generic title like Abraham Lincoln, A Life, or a very intimidating book, I must say, uh, Abraham Lincoln, A Life. Um, and so I thought I should bring that information together. Uh, and, and, and since the time that the big book came out, this 10, 12 years ago, uh, there's been a revolution in American historical research techniques and that is that uh, word searchable newspaper databases have proliferated. Now, th there were some available uh, in the early 20 21st century, but between uh, 2010 and now, they've proliferated. It's just astounding. And it's, so, it's, it's really an exciting time to be a historian because you can do so much research now. Instead of doing what I used to do for years, you sit in front of a microfilm reader and you turn the crank and you go through newspapers day by day. But now you just type in a word, a phrase, whatever, and boom, you get newspapers. Hundreds, thousands of newspapers are available at your fingertips. And, and thank God for genealogists because it's, it's genealogy bank is the main source, but uh, not the only source. And you're not. The anyway, first. so I wanted, I wanted to get my, I wanted people to have access to it uh, in that form. Excuse me. No, it's okay. you're not the first scholar to tell us that the searchable newspapers are a big, big deal for the work that they've done. Um, you open the book with the story of how Lincoln pardoned a soldier who'd left to go home to an unhappy marriage. Um, he says, it's all right. I understand. Uh, why did you think that anecdote was so telling? Tell us about the anecdote and what you discovered. And is it because Lincoln saw a bit of himself in this young man? Did he wish that he could be pardoned from his marriage? <laughs> well, I think that's, that's a plausible uh, explanation, but um, the, the story goes like this. Uh, Lincoln, of course, uh, <clears throat> as president, uh, had to bend, found himself constantly reviewing court-martial cases where soldiers had been condemned to death. And Lincoln would bend over backwards to find some extenuating circumstance to at least reduce the sentence, if not to commute it. And so, um, so here's a quick uh, case of a soldier who's deserted because his sweetheart back home was allegedly making time with a, with a rival. And so this young fellow decides he's going to go back and nip that romance in the bud. And so he does, and he gets married. Uh, but then he gets uh, arrested and tried for desertion and condemned to death. And Lincoln says, well, hmm, I don't want to have the young man killed, but he, he should be punished. I mean, that's pretty unfortunate to desert. Um, so... Um, I will give him a pardon, and about a year or so, he'll probably regret that I did so. <laughs> so and so, so Lincoln is saying that marriage is something that he was going to probably rue, and Lincoln uh, had good reason to rue his own marriage. Um, and so. you felt that was a good window into the beginning exactly. of the book. And also, it's a way to, to introduce you to Lincoln and his, his sense of humor. Right, uh, right. Um, how did they meet in 1839? You know, uh, everybody knows a couple. Um, I'm, of course, I'm not going to mention any names, but everyone knows a couple where you see them at first and you go, they are never going to last. This right. is a right. passing fad. 
And that is true for Abraham and Mary Todd. The first impression they made was not a good one. Lincoln was dorky, hopelessly boring, uh, too much newspaper, not enough chill. Um, how'd they meet in 1839? Well, she, uh, they, were, they were both in Springfield and they both come from Kentucky, uh, were born and raised in Kentucky. Um, and uh, so, so Lincoln had moved to Illinois with his family when he was 21 and then, then moved by himself to uh, central Illinois instead of eastern Illinois and uh, was established himself as a lawyer in, in Springfield. And his partner was uh, uh, his political mentor uh, and, and patron, uh, even though he's only a year older, a guy named John Todd Stewart. And so, uh, and, and Stewart was a member of the, the Springfield aristocracy. Uh, and so uh, he was good friends with uh, the governor's son, uh, a guy named Ninian Edwards. And the Edwards home on Aristocracy Hill, that's literally what it's called in, in Springfield to, to this day. Um, they gave a lot of parties. And so John Todd Stewart would bring his friend um, uh, and his, his law partner, uh, Abraham Lincoln, to these parties. Um, and uh, so, uh, at, and then, Mrs. Uh, uh, Mary Todd comes from Lexington, Kentucky, where she was born and raised, but she was very distraught by her uh, really, uh, difficulties with her stepmother. Uh, and Mary's oldest sister, Elizabeth, who was a kind of surrogate mother to Mary, uh, older and concerned for her well-being, had married the governor's son, settled in Springfield, and, um, and then invited her sisters one by one to come up to Springfield where they would be introduced into society. They would meet young men and court them and be courted by them and then marry them. So, um, so, so Elizabeth moves to Springfield. Then she get, brings her sister Frances and Frances uh, meets a doctor and they get married, a huge wedding. Uh, and then Mary is brought up. Uh, and, and so, so, uh, so she's at the Edwards home and Lincoln is brought as a guest to parties at the Edwards home. And so they, they met there. But as you suggest, they were really <laughs> poles apart uh, in temperament, in background, in education, in values, in almost every department. And, and Mary's sister, her virtual mother, Elizabeth, at first thought this might be a good match. But then as time went by, she realized this, this country bumpkin, Lincoln, uh, was a promising and up and coming man. But he was too unrefined, too... Um, course. Um, and, and Lincoln was something of a bumpkin. He would come into to ballrooms, for example, in Springfield, and he'd turn to his friend, he would say, Herndon, look at this, look at these women, they're so, they're so clean. <laughs> so you can imagine what he grew up in in Indiana and, and Kentucky. And you found so, a lot of, you found a lot of evidence of people um, talking about what their impression of them was very early on as a couple. Tell us about some of that evidence. Yes, well, that uh, 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 Elizabeth Edwards, for example, would observe uh, her sister Mary and Lincoln uh, when they were courting at, at the Edwards home. And Lincoln would sit there and he was tongue-tied and, and Mary would go on and on and on. And, and so, so Elizabeth was, was quite struck by Lincoln's inability to converse with a woman, to have any kind of social skills. And he just he seemed uh, so unpolished that he would be unacceptable to somebody with Mary's taste because Mary had been raised in a very uh, prominent, uh, economically prominent, socially prominent family uh, in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, 
And so uh, she was, and, and she'd been to private schools. She'd learned French. She'd learned dancing. She'd learned polite letter writing. She'd learned literature. And here's poor old Lincoln, who's had less than one formal year of education um, and, and has no sophistication. Um, uh, and so Elizabeth said, no, this, this is clearly not, this is not a match made in heaven. So that's your, the best evidence we have. Your discussion of what made them attracted to one another is fascinating. And I love psychology. And so I loved this phrase that you included in the book, unfinished mother and father business. Lincoln could make, you argue Lincoln could make Mary kind of a surrogate child. Mary saw someone who could replace the love that her father never gave her and take her places he never did. Tell us about this unfinished mother and father business. Well, that's, that's a, I can't claim to have invented that. that I'm not saying you did. It's just a great <laughs> phrase. Yeah, it's just well, a great is. phrase. Well, those psychologists talk about that. There are an awful lot of us in our interpersonal relationships or intimate relationships bring with us unfinished mother and father business. It's just, it's just part of the blue plate. That's just the way life is. Um, and oftentimes, if we have a, a fraught relationship with a parent of the opposite sex, that will then tend to uh, affect the way in which we relate to our, to our partner, to our spouse. Um, and so in, in Lincoln's case, he um, lost his mother when he was nine years old. And it's a terrible blow to lose a parent before you reach adolescence. It's hard enough when you're an adolescent alone, but really when you're a little kid before your adolescence, it's a terrible blow. Um, and one of the things that seems to have come as a result of the early death of his mother is a propensity for depression in the rest of his life. And we know that there were two occasions upon which Lincoln was so depressed, his friends feared that he would commit suicide. And those, those apparently, there were good reason to fear that. Um, and also, he seems to have learned that you can't trust women. If you get close to them and rely on them for emotional, and that they'll, they'll abandon you. Now, now, little children tend to interpret the death of a parent as a deliberate act of abandonment, which is crazy, of course, but apparently that's the way children think. Uh, so he comes to the marriage uh, with suspicion. Don't want to get too close to a woman. Be, be emotionally reserved. Don't, don't get too close. Um, and, she, uh, and she has a similar problem. Uh, she loses her mother when she's six, very young. Uh, her father, who, then, who, who has six children by, by the wife who died, um, uh, then... Of course, Russia's have to get remarried because he's got to have somebody to take care of these six children. And, and so he goes and marries a much younger woman. Hello. Um, and, uh, and then the new wife says, in effect, dear, don't pay any attention to those women you had by that dead lady. Pay attention to the nine children we're going to have. And, and so they, they had nine children. And so, so Robert, Todd, uh, Robert Todd sired 15 children. Well, every man should have an occupation, as they say. Um, <laughs> and, and, he, uh, and, and so apparently, to, to accommodate his new wife, he tuned out Mary and her siblings in order to pay attention to the children he was having by wife number two. And this is a common problem. Uh, we tend to think of blended family problems as a modern phenomenon created by divorce, but it's an ancient problem created by the death of, of women in childbirth. Um, so... Uh, so anyway, so she then feels abandoned by her mother and then, and then emotionally abandoned by her father, who in order to accommodate his wife and so on. Um, and so then she's looking for a father figure. 
Now, Lincoln is, a, is 10 years older. He's a foot taller. And he radiates a quality in his 30s even of being a wise old man. It's striking how many people talk about how youthful he looked, but yet he radiated a kind of wisdom and the positive qualities of, of older uh, people. And so she was very much drawn to him as a surrogate father. Uh, he then, um, he, he has this very strong paternal quality. So he's, and he relates very easy as, as a lawyer to younger lawyers and he nurtures them and helps them out. Um, and so she appealed to him and to his paternal side. Um, and so I think those were the, uh, those, that's part of the attraction. But what, when, uh, when she lands him, then all the anger that she feels at her father for having tuned her out gets displaced on the Lincoln. And, and, and she physically abuses him and insults him and, and ridicules him and humiliates him. And so he stays away from home as much as possible. He practices law out on the circuit, uh, which he had to do some of the time, but he did a lot of the time just to stay away from her, which of course just made her all the more angry. What's fascinating also is that Lincoln is not so sure about this. He has real question marks. He falls in love with other women. Um, what accounts for his willingness I guess then to go back, to keep going back to her? That's a, that's a very good question. Lincoln and, and Mary get uh, engaged, although there's no formal ring, no formal party, but, but there seems to have been an understanding uh, after a relatively brief courtship. Um, but then, then they're apart a lot because Lincoln is uh, uh, busy on the circuit. Every fall and every spring, the lawyers in Springfield would go out and one week in a small town in a small county seat and then the next week and the next week and so on uh, and then every fall um, and uh, and then in, in the fall of an even year even numbered year he would be very active as a political campaigner for the Whig party so um, so they, they see each other in the winter of 3940 uh, and they we don't know much about that period but that, that's when they could have really seen each other and then he goes off to the circuit and then in the summer she goes off to visit relatives in Missouri and then in the fall, He's campaigning. So they really don't get to see each other. By the time they get back together, Lincoln has realized they're really not very compatible. And so he breaks the engagement. Uh, and, and then his conscience bothers him terribly because he believes if you've made a promise, if you've made a commitment and somebody else is acting on it, you're bound to, to follow through. That, that's your, your duty. Uh, and Lincoln had a very sensitive conscience. Uh, and so for over a year and a half, his conscience nags him and nags him and nags him. And then he's thrown together with her at a party, at a wedding party. And apparently they start seeing each other uh, again. Um, and, then, and then suddenly they get married on one day's notice, which is, which is quite surprising. Uh, because as I say, uh, Elizabeth Edwards, Mary's uh, older sister, who was her virtual uh, mother, um, wanted to give her a big wedding. She had given Francis a great big wedding um, and they belonged to social circles where, where that was just expected. You had a big party and you paid a lot of social debts and and, uh, and yet, and Mary gets married on one day's notice. She just, one day she says to her sister, I'm getting married today. And Lincoln says to a parson in town, I'm getting married today. Um, and so that, uh, that cries out for some kind of explanation. Now, a, a, a very fine historian in Springfield, a gentleman named Wayne Temple, who's written a great number of, of works on Lincoln. He's, we're all indebted to Wayne Temple. 
And uh, Wayne Temple wrote a book on Lincoln's religion, called a fine book called From Skeptic to Prophet. And in the course of that book, he suggests in passing that, that Mary uh, Todd may have seduced Lincoln uh, and said, now you have to marry me. Uh, and and I, I remember reading that and I clapped my hand to my forehead and said, why didn't I think of that back when I was doing my first book? Uh, and of course, you can't prove something like that. But if you accept that hypothesis that Wayne Temple put forward, that is the seduction hypothesis, then it makes sense of a lot of things that otherwise don't make sense. For example, why did they get married on one day's notice? Uh, why did Lincoln tell one of his two groomsmen that he was forced into the marriage? Um, why did he say when he was asked as he went to the wedding, where are you going? To hell, I guess, he said. Um, uh, Robert Todd Lincoln, their first son, is born eight months, three weeks, and, and four days after uh, the wedding. So it doesn't necessarily in and of itself prove anything. Um, but if you, if you accept the seduction hypothesis, then, then all those other things make sense. Now, on top of that, is it, is it plausible? Would Mary Lincoln, Mary Todd do such an unethical thing? Well, what we know is that as first lady, she engaged in the most outrageous unethical behavior. She padded payroll, she padded expense accounts, she accepted bribes, she accepted kickbacks, she engaged in extortion, she sold state secrets. She really had a very uh, compromised- Busy, as a busy, uh, busy time. Um, and we're gonna get to, the, to her time as first lady, but um, let's get into just what, as much as we know about their daily marriage, what it was like for them. Um, I want to give you a couple of quotes here or a couple of things to, to jog, um, jog our discussion. Uh, people will never know what he endured. He had the wisdom of Socrates and the patience of Christ. Um, we should also say, though, that Lincoln was not the ideal partner. He has a real issue in showing love and in showing affection, you found very few love letters, if any, between them, particularly from him to her. So based on those two quotes, what do we know about their daily life as a married couple? You said he was gone for long stretches of time. Uh, yes, and, and this, this has to be underscored. Insofar as that was an unhappy marriage, and it was a really unhappy marriage, it wasn't a one-way street, uh, that, that he was not an ideal husband. That is, uh, like many other men, he was emotionally reserved and uncommunicative, uh, present company excluded, of course. Um, and, I have no uh, idea what you're talking about. <laughs> My wife is in the other room. I could have her come in and say um, how open I am. <laughs> so, uh, and she was exceedingly needy for reasons I just tried to suggest. Because yeah, of, sure. And she grew up feeling unloved and unlovable because of the death of her mother and the remarriage of her father. Uh, and, and so, uh, so she really needs to be loved and nurtured and supported and constantly reinforced. Well, Lincoln didn't, it was not part of his DNA, uh, given his childhood and his loss of his mother and his, his very distant relationship with his father. He, too, was, was emotionally kind of constrained and so couldn't, couldn't meet her neediness. And, uh, and so the, the day in, day out life was, was uh, she, was, she was constantly discontent with him right off the bat. Uh, and she had a terrible temper, and it, it manifested itself right away. They, when, when they were married, they spent their first few months in a, in a hotel, a tavern it was called, um, and the, one of the rules of the tavern was that, um, uh, the, the, the ho it was a hotel, really, the hotel guests uh, all had to be at table at breakfast time before anybody could sit down to eat. 
and she was always late. And one day Lincoln is a little embarrassed that his wife is delaying breakfast for, for all his fellow boarders, um, gently chides her for her tardiness, at which point she grabs a hot cup of coffee, flings it in his face and goes screaming out of the room. Now, my that's domestic violence. I mean, that's domestic <laughs> violence. Yeah. Exactly. Now, my better half said, well, she was pregnant, wasn't she? I said, yes, but a lot of pregnant ladies don't do things like that. <laughs> um, and, so, uh, and so right off the bat, you realize, uh-oh, uh, this is a troubled marriage. Um, and so, so day in, day out, life was uh, strained, to say the least. And one of the things that, that I've been active in doing in Springfield uh, for the past year or so is trying to uh, get a replica of the house that they lived in uh, for 12 years, uh, shortly after they got married. They lived in a very small six-room cottage. 12 years after they moved in, it was expanded to a second floor and they doubled the number of rooms. So when you go to Springfield today, be sure to visit the Lincoln home, which is really quite a spectacular, very moving site, but it is very misleading uh, uh, it gives you a misleading impression of what their day in day out life was like early in the marriage, because for 12 years, they lived in a cramped small cottage. And for five years thereafter, they lived in this big 12 room, uh, much more comfortable space. And, and if there's tension within a, in a family, it tends to get intensified and magnified if you're cramped. Um, like, so, like COVID, they, like, like living in a COVID quarantine. Right. Um, right. Uh, how, uh, so they're married November 4th, 1842. You've talked about their wedding day, um, how it was kind of a, I don't want to say shotgun, but a real quick type no, wedding. No. Um, how does Lincoln's career start to parallel their marriage? He's already in politics, but he's always aiming higher. He's always wondering, is there an angle I can move up in offices? Um, how is she pushing and pulling him to go for the gold as he is also looking for higher offices to run? This may be a case where they were symbiotic. Well, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, and Lincoln's favorite play, he was, he was a great fan of Shakespeare and particularly of the play Macbeth. He said, nothing equals Macbeth. And that's partly because of that Lincoln was a profound fatalist. And of course, that's the main theme of Macbeth. But also, it's a play about two, about a, a married couple, a loveless marriage, in which both partners are ambitious, but that the woman is more ambitious than the man. Um, and I think Lincoln unconsciously related to that. That, that as, as you suggest, Lincoln's ambition was not born when the, the day he got married. Lincoln was an ambitious uh, politician early on. Uh, uh, and his, his uh, uh, law partner, William Herndon, in a biography, a really famous biography of Lincoln, has a, has a sentence that is well known in which uh, it's, it's said that his ambition was a little engine that knew no rest. Well, what Mary does is to turbocharge that engine. Uh, and he would have gone fairly far in politics, but she kept nudging him further and further. You have to go further. You have to get higher and higher because she wanted to be first lady. She wanted to be famous. She wanted to have uh, lots of attention and deference, which, which oftentimes happens when people are, grow up feeling unloved and unlovable. They look for surrogate forms of love, which oftentimes are fame and power and publicity and, and that sort of thing. So, um, so she's really goading him. And he probably wouldn't have gone as far as he did if it hadn't been for her goading. Um, was there such thing as marriage counseling back then? Did they ever <laughs> seek help? No. The, the, 
that didn't brain, exist. That psychology didn't exist. Uh, you, you went to your minister or, or your, your doctor, perhaps, for, for such counseling, but uh, there was no psychological profession of marriage counseling. I want to ask this question also. I, I, this is a, I should have asked this just before that last one, but um, it goes with what you were talking about, about his efforts and her efforts to keep rising. Would he have been so good at politics if he wasn't so inept at love? Uh, I don't think so. Um, the, the, one of the things that made Lincoln a successful president and such an admirable character in general is his uncanny ability to deal with difficult people. As president, he's challenged by senators like Charles Sumner, egomaniac, uh, uh, a congressman like Henry Winter Davis, a fierce uh, opponent, uh, newspaper editors like Horace Greeley, uh, cabinet members like Sam and Chase, uh, they're very difficult people. And Lincoln refuses to take criticism personally. He refuses to take disagreement personally. He refuses to get involved in, in interpersonal conflict with people. Um, and so his remarkable ability to deal with difficult people really helped keep uh, his cabinet together, his party together, his, his section together, that is the North, uh, and making the North's victory uh, in the war possible. I, I argue, and I'm, I'm not alone in this, that the main difference between the Confederacy and the Union during the war um, uh, was the difference in not military leadership, but civilian leadership. That it's, it's, a, it's a truism to talk about how the Confederacy enjoyed superior generals, particularly in the Eastern theater. Um, but people oftentimes ignore the fact that this kind of war really needed civilian leadership of equal, uh, was equally important to, to keep your, your morale going, to, to um, choose wise generals, to do all the things that are necessary in a, in a, in a civil war. And that Lincoln was, was a genius at this because he had, a, he had a knack for dealing with difficult people. And that I think is partly and I'm not being facetious here, it's partly a result of having to deal with a difficult person for over 20 years before he became president. What can we learn about, they do have a couple of kids. They, they have um, uh, one child who died, of course, young, very famously. Um, uh, they have another child who grows into an adult and ends up serving his country. Um, what can we learn about their marriage from the way they parented? Well, their, their parenting styles were very different. Uh, Lincoln was extremely indulgent, and he said, he said and, and this is a quote from his, uh, his wife, Barry Lincoln writing after the assassination, talks about how Lincoln's attitude toward child-rearing was very indulgent, um, that he said, uh, uh, love is the uh, link with which to bind a child to a parent, uh, and he, he, he said, uh, it, the last thing in the world that people should engage in is parental tyranny, his, his expression, according to her. She, on the other hand, was very strict, and she had a terrible temper, just awful temper. And she would lash out at the children and, and, and spank them and, and discipline them very harshly. Uh, and Lincoln would constantly try to intervene to prevent the kids from being uh, treated harshly. Uh, so... Uh, they had very different temperaments, uh, and their parenting styles were very different. When he gets elected, Doris Kearns Goodwin describes in her book, Team of Rivals, which is, I'm sure, a book that you know very well, she describes Lincoln running up the steps, 
to tell his wife excitedly that they have been elected. It's an emotional scene in that book. Um, you say something different, and it stuck out at me. You say, he said, hang on, I'm the president, I've won, but let me run home. There's someone who might be a little bit more excited about this than I am. Right. <laughs> uh, tell us about that moment. Well, uh, now, th- this, this uh, story that Doris Kearns Goodman, in, in her very fine book, tells uh, is suspect. Uh, the notion that he comes up and he says, we are elected. Um, indicating that they're a political partnership, that they're the Macbeths. Um, and, and the notion that she was a, a political partner of his is, is uh, very mis- misleading. That she was a partner in the sense that we've already talked about how she would go to him and say, try harder, try harder, uh, aspire higher. Um, but when it came to politics and views and issues, she was completely naive. Her uh, take on politics was was very personal. What what would benefit her and her husband? Um, and and some biographers of, of Mrs. Lincoln have tended to uh, uh, argue that she was a quote um, a ardent abolitionist, uh, but she wasn't. Uh, her take on she was raised in a slave state. She was used to having slaves, um, and her uh, the, there's no evidence that she was a strong uh, opponent of slavery. In fact. Uh, if you look at her, her letters, uh, hundreds of letters have been published. She almost never talks about political issues. But in 1856, she does write a telling letter to her favorite sister, Emily. Um, and this is right after the election. It's late November 56. And this is the first election that the Republican Party has been in existence. And it's, it's an avowedly anti-slavery party. The, the candidate is John Charles Fremont. He's running on an anti-slavery platform. Uh, and Lincoln knocks himself out. He gives over four dozen speeches here, there, and everywhere. Uh, championing the Republican Party and the anti-slavery cause. She then, so, and uh, John Charles Fremont loses the election. Um, And uh, one of the reasons he loses is that in addition to a Democrat he had to run against, there was a third party called the American Party, also known as the Know-Nothing Party, which was anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant. And so Mrs. Lincoln says, well, if I had vote, um, I would have voted uh, for the American Party candidate because uh, he knows how to deal with those foreigners. And if you housewives in Kentucky had to deal with a wild Irish, like we housewives in Illinois, then you would support uh, the American party too. And you think, good Lord, (laughs) this is an ardent abolitionist. Give me a break. What is their marriage like when he is in the White House? Uh, She is, as you say, an endless source of embarrassment. She buys too much, she takes too much, she talks too right. much. She tries to influence right. his decisions too much. She lashes, lashes out too much. She causes scandal. Absolutely. What's it like? Well, his, he, one of the most poignant things I discovered in my 30 plus years of, of doing Lincoln scholarship was something I discovered on the first day that I actually did original research. That is an unpublished <laughs> source. One day. I, I, I one did, day. <laughs> well, it's just unbelievable. Uh, I, I wrote my first book. Um, the inner world of Abraham Lincoln, based on the idea that uh, everything new, everything about Lincoln of, of any importance had long since been unearthed by an army of scholars that preceded me, because there's zillions of books about Lincoln. Um, and so I thought, what I will do is I'll take this familiar information, which I can get from books and articles, published sources, and I'll, I'll have a psychological uh, slant and offer some different interpretations and insights that I'll try to generate. 
but then I thought, so, so I drafted the book based on published sources, but I thought I really should do some research in unpublished sources. When I was teaching at Connecticut College in New London at that time, and that's about an hour from Providence, Rhode Island, which is the home of, of uh, Brown University, which is, has the John Hay Library. And, and John Hay was Lincoln's assistant personal secretary in the White House, and he kept a very valuable diary and, and was a wonderful guy. He was like a surrogate son to, to Lincoln. Um, and so the, I, I go to the John Hay Library, and the, it's the first day I'm doing original research. And I go to the card catalog. You're too young to remember what a card catalog is. But, um, I do remember a card catalog. <laughs> so I go to the drawer. I didn't like them. <laughs> I go to the drawer marked L and I pull it out and I start flipping through those little three by five cards. And I, I'm astounded. All of a sudden I see one where, that describes an interview that uh, Nicolay, the, who was Lincoln's principal White House secretary, had 10 years after the assassination with an important ally of Lincoln's. And I knew the published sources pretty well. And I said, jeepers, this guy's all kinds of information and it's, it's not in the sources. And then I looked at the next card, same thing, another interview and another interview and another interview. I thought, whoa, this is really, this is gold. And uh, one of those interviews was with a guy named Orville Browning. Uh, Orville Browning was a very close friend of Lincoln's. He was a, a Whig in the legislature when they served together. Uh, he was a leading uh, Whig lawyer. Um, and, and then during the Civil War, he was senator from Illinois. So he was in Washington a lot and he kept a diary. Um, which is an extremely valuable source um, and which historians have used. Uh, this, this was published back in the 20s and 30s. Um, but it turns out that in this interview with Browning, which is very revealing about many things, um, uh, Browning says, when I was in Washington, I would frequently go to the White House uh, and be with my old friend Lincoln. The Sundays we would oftentimes just spend together relaxing and reading and visiting and, and uh, um, and Lincoln was famous for being shut-mouthed about his personal life. He wouldn't talk about those sort of things, but he does with Browning. And he said, when I was with him in the White House, frequently he would tell me that he was terrified that his wife was going to do something to humiliate him and disgrace him publicly. And she did by her, by her unethical behavior, by her lavish spending on the White House, flub dubs as Lincoln called them, by her spending on her dresses and her travel uh, outside of Washington, instead of staying in Washington and going to hospitals and tending to the wounded soldiers. And like she would be off shopping in New York frequently and then off to New England for the summers and, and the like. So she, why was she like this? Why, why uh, was she like this? Well, she, she craved, as I suggested earlier, she, 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 she said she craved having um, fame, uh, having uh, fancy dresses, uh, being well-to-do, uh, being deferred to uh, because of her, her emotional neediness stemming from the, ch the childhood loss of her mother and the emotional distancing of her father, I think is the, the main reason. Um, and, and so poor old Lincoln, when you, when you, and one of the reasons I wrote this book, and one of the reasons I think this story needs to be told, and it needs to be told in a format like the one that's just been published, um, is that you can't really appreciate fully Lincoln's triumph over adversity without understanding just how woe-filled that marriage was. Partly his fault, to be sure. At least, we'll, we'll say at least half. Um, but when you think of all, when you think of how he overcame the early death of his mother, uh, the frontier poverty, Lincoln grew up in real poverty, about the, the unsympathetic father that he had, uh, the death of his sister, the death of his brother, the death of his sweetheart, the death of his foster grandparents, all this happening when he's relatively young. Uh, 
and, and he overcomes all this, a lack of edu formal education. It's just amazing how he overcomes so much and then becomes such a successful president, not just famous, but so, so effective as president. Um, and, and yet he did that without a helpmate. In fact, just the opposite. She was a constant source of embarrassment to him as president. And, um, and, and, and the, the presidency didn't uh, help matters from her point of view because he was so busy that he was, he was not uh, available to her. And I, I, I recently discovered a letter, which I included in, in the new book, in which uh, a woman who called at the White House and got to know her pretty well said, I just spoke with Mrs. Lincoln, to, uh, and um, she tells me that she, she goes sometimes two days without seeing her husband, though they live in the same house. Um, so, so that just made the, the, her uh, anger at Lincoln even greater. I'm going to ask the unaskable question. Forgive me, but was there ever an affair? There might have been. Um, I was going to uh, say, you allude to it. You get pretty close. Well, this, the, the evidence is inconclusive, but it's, it's suggestive. And there's smoke, and it doesn't necessarily mean there fire, it means that there's fire, but there might well be. Um, uh, we know that, that she was in collusion to pad payrolls with the, with the White House gardener. The gardener was something of a, a gunniff and a, a crook. And so he uh, just told her how to pad bills so that she could have money to spend on her clothes and jewelry and the like by billing the White House for gardening expenses that, that were inflated. Um, and, uh, and then he then suggests uh, that she, he knows things about her, her conduct with, with men that were uh, indecent. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean sexual, um, but there there were allegations that she went on on uh, uh, shopping trips to New York with a, a gentleman who had been very solicitous of her, who had had organized the train trip from Springfield to Washington back in February of '61 when Lincoln was going to the Capitol in order to be inaugurated, and this gentleman was a, was very solicitous. Was Lincoln was apparently handsome and and courteous and and he he gave her a. a a uh, handsome carriage and handsome horses uh, and would go with her on shopping trips. And people speculated that they were having an affair. Well, it, it's possible. She was a very gullible woman with, and very needy emotionally. And then uh, a Yates, a Senator Yates, the guy who was governor of, of Illinois during the Civil War and had been a good friend of Lincoln's um, and, and had been, been Lincoln's congressman and Lincoln had worked for his election. And so Yates is Senator in, uh, five years after Lincoln's assassination, gets up in the in the House uh, in the in the Senate and says, apropos of a, of a bill to give Mrs. Lincoln a pension, um, he says things to the effect that uh, women should always be true to their husbands and and hints very broadly that Mrs. Lincoln had not been faithful. So it's it's given the fact that she's very emotionally needy that Lincoln is even more removed, uh, thanks to the demands of the presidency, than usual. Uh, that she may have been uh, taken in by by a, a seducer, and the guy that is alleged to have seduced her uh, had a reputation as a li libertine. The guy named William S. Woods. So uh, it's possible, but but not uh, not established well enough to say for sure. Mm. This is a crazy story, and I have read two dozen very long, very detailed books about Lincoln by the most famous scholars out there. Um, I had never heard this, read this hypothesis, or maybe I forgot it. It's possible. But um, if the Grants were willing to deal with Mary Todd for the night at Ford's Theater, 
they might have gone to Ford's Theater and you argue maybe even would have indirectly helped stop John Wilkes Booth from getting into the presidential box to do his awful deed. Um, where'd you come up with that? What do you think? Well, actually, Could this have I, stopped the assassination? I, 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 had a, I, had a, I have a good friend who's a, a distinguished grant scholar, a guy named Brooks Simpson. Uh, and Brooks called my attention to a passage in, in a cabinet diary. Uh, Grant's secretary of state was a gentleman with the unlikely name of Hamilton Fish, a very fine di diplomat and, and uh, eminent figure. Um, and he kept a very detailed diary while he was in the Grant cabinet. And one November day in 1869, the first year of Grant's administration, uh, the cabinet met regularly and Grant said, well, like, there's nothing much to talk about, no, not much business today, so I'll tell you some war stories. And so, and so you, if you go to the Fish Diary, uh, you'll, you'll find this, this passage where, where Grant says, um, uh, on the night of uh, uh, April 13th, uh, Lincoln was supposed to take a carriage ride with his wife around Washington to see the illuminated buildings, to celebrate the North's victory in the war. Uh, buildings were uh, candles and gas lights on every, were at every window and, and elaborate gas uh, uh, billboards, in effect, uh, were created. Uh, and apparently it was quite a spectacular sight. And Lincoln had promised to take Mrs. Lincoln on carriage ride to go around to enjoy the sights. Well, he had a terrible headache. Uh, and so he asked Grant if he would be a pinch hitter. And Grant said, sure. So uh, the, the first lady and uh, General Grant now this is on the thirteenth. This is the this is the, the night before the fourteenth assassination. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yep. Go ahead. And so uh, the general and the first lady get into a carriage, and there's a crowd gathered uh, nearby, and they see Grant, and they say, "Grant, Grant, Grant!" They cheer for Grant. Mrs. Lincoln gets all huffy because she thinks she should be recognized first, and by virtue of being the first lady of the land. And so she starts to get out of the carriage, and Grant manages to persuade her to come back. And then the crowd says, "Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln!" Uh, so that mollifies her somewhat. Well, then the carriage moves along, and it happens again, and she gets all huffy. And then Grant has to calm her down, uh, and again, and again. Uh, and so Grant thinks, "I don't, I don't want to go with this woman <laughs> to the theater the next day." Now, on top of that, Grant had hosted Lincoln down at the front in late, May, uh, late March and early April, just, just, a, just a short time before this. Uh, and during his, his uh, prolonged stay down there, um, uh, Mrs. Lincoln comes down and, and she behaves in a very imperious fashion and treats Mrs. Grant uh, as, as though she were the queen and Mrs. Grant has to be the uh, humble servant. And so uh, Mrs. Grant sits down in, in her presence without having been invited to do so. And, she, and, and Mrs. Lincoln says, how dare you sit down without my permission? Uh, and, uh, you're violating court etiquette. Um, and, uh, and Mrs. Grant took some offense at that, to say the least. And then, and then, uh, and then the, the Lincolns do a lot of entertaining on, on their ship um, in the evenings. Uh, and, and then they exclude the Grants. Um, and Mrs. Mrs. Grant is very hurt and, and, and upset about this. And so, so when it is suggested that the Grants might go with the uh, Lincolns to the theater on uh, the night of April 13th to see our American cousin at Ford's Theater. the night theater, of April 14th. Grant says, right, right. That, that it's, uh, yeah. when, they, when it's suggested on the 13th that they may I go see. on the 14th, yeah. um, that um, 
that she says, no way, you know, dear, let's figure out an excuse. I got it. Let's go see our children in New Jersey. <laughs> and, and you so, argue and, if they were there, it would well, have been more. No, I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to say that, Lincoln, that Grant's security forces would have been better than Lincoln's, which Lincoln's was virtually non-existent. I mean, he, he did have some accompanying, but they, they, were, they were primarily guards who were at the White House to keep people from, from taking scissors and snipping up pieces of carpet and curtain. Um, whereas Grant, what Grant had, um, had a shadow, a guy who was constantly worried about his well-being, uh, and would never have allowed Booth into that, into that, uh, box seat. So, um, it's entirely possible that if Mrs. Lincoln hadn't misbehaved so badly with Grant on the night before and with Mrs. Grant the week before, two weeks before, uh, that the assassination would not have occurred, at least on that day. Lincoln used to dream of death. Was some of that dreaming a subconscious, his subconscious acting out saying, I want out of this marriage? Well, that, that, that's possible. Now, there, there's a well-known uh, but, uh, but bogus story about how Lincoln <laughs> went that, that he, uh, he heard some wailing and moaning in the White House and got out of bed, went down, and there was a catafalque, and he said, who's dead? And then somebody tells him, oh, the president is dead. Well, that story is, is, is the provenance of that story is very suspect. Um, but now Lincoln did have dreams and he was, it was influenced by dreams. Um, but, but that dream, uh, the story behind that dream is pretty improbable. Mm. Um, now, did, did Lincoln long for death? Now, we, we, we do know, and this is something I found relatively recently, um, that Elizabeth Keckley, who was a black woman who was Mrs. Lincoln's confidant and, and best friend in the White House, um, it was her dressmaker. Uh, and so, so Elizabeth Keckley was in the White House as a seamstress a lot and got to see the Lincolns interact. And she wrote a book, came out three years after the assassination, which just had a gold mine of information about how the Lincolns interacted as husband and wife in the White House. Uh, and anyway, Elizabeth Keckley, toward the end of her life, is interviewed by a journalist. And, and Elizabeth Keckley says this very poignant passage in which she says, um, I know, and I know full well, because I knew that good man very well, that he longed for death, that life was a burden to him, uh, and that he just, that the, the, the responsibilities that weighed so heavily upon him throughout the war were just wearing him down. And, and you can see that in the photographs. The photographs of Lincoln, just as he's about to be inaugurated in 61, uh, he's 51, and he looks young. Four years later, he looks like your great grandmother, uh, and it's it's a cliche to say that the presidency is it, it, uh, wearing on whoever holds that office. Um, uh, but Lincoln, there's no better example than the burden that Lincoln had to bear uh, and the toll it took on him. So did she? Um, go ahead. Did she ever consider marrying again? No, not that we know of. What does uh, that she, tell she, you? What does that tell you? Well. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it, that well, she she was de, uh, she she loved being the the uh, widow of the of the president, um, uh, and um, but uh, it's it's hard to say what what that that would that would tell you. Uh, uh, but for one thing, uh, this is a point I should have made at the beginning of our conversation. She is, and and I make this point in everything I've written and every talk I give. That, that she is more to be pitied than censured. That, that uh, think about it. 
the things that she had to deal with, starting with the death of her mother when she's six, the emerge the, her father then tunes her out. The stepmother is is hostile, and and so that that's tough in your childhood. Um, then she has four children. Three of them, three of her four children, die before reaching adulthood. Um, even by the standards of the 19th century, that's unusually high uh, mortality rate. Her husband is murdered by her side at the peak of his fame and fortune. She suffers throughout her adult life with migraine headaches that are so debilitating that she she uh, she's, she vomits. <laughs> she has to spend time in bed. Um, uh, migraine headaches are no fun. She has terrible menstrual problems. Um, and uh, and then she has bipolar disorder. Uh, she, she's manic depressive, and so she's inherited a gene uh, of of uh, bipolar disorder. Uh, and that's an awful lot of misery on one person's plate. Now we all have a fair amount of misery on our plates by virtue of being human, but her portion, I think, was particularly heaping. And so she does deserve uh, to be uh, to have <clears throat> more pity than censure. On the other hand, she made her husband's life very miserable. Uh, and that has to be borne in mind simultaneously. Is there a recent presidential marriage that reminds you of Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd? Well, to some extent, uh, the Clintons. Um, uh, you know, she, Hillary more than, <laughs> than, yeah. than her husband. Um, that, that Lincoln and Bill are pretty different characters. Um, uh, but I would say way, so. Yeah, that's a fair, <laughs> that's a fair statement. That's that, a fair that, statement. That, and and when, when my book came out, um, it was a part of uh, something of a national news story. In part, and I didn't draw these analogies, but I think a lot of people did about how how uh, a first lady could be could be unethical and misbehave in the White House. So um, that that's the closest parallel I can think of. What is the best political marriage, both internally and for the impact that it had on the American people? Huh. I. Uh, hmm. uh, I suppose one would argue that it would could be Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, that uh, that 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 marriage was was not entirely an emotionally uh, satisfying relationship for either one of them, but it's uh, they're beneficial. That she was a big help to him as president, as his eyes and ears going around and, and um, mingling with people and and, uh, and and bringing back news about popular opinion um, and. Uh, and so, and and he, of course, was was uh, supportive of her, although uh, <clears throat> not entirely faithful, apparently. Um, so I would if say probably was... that. Although the most admirable first lady is, is Abigail Adams, um, and uh, uh, her uh, relationship with her husband John um, uh, was, uh, uh, I think, one of the strongest and and, and most admirable uh, love matches. Uh, where a powerful woman, not. Uh, uh, not uh, just a helpmate, but a, but a strong influence on his thinking and, and if there, If there was one piece of evidence that you could have access to, anything you want, what would it be to help you round out this story of their marriage? Well, um, is it well, a letter? Is it a, is it a surveillance video? Is it a letter? Is it a, <laughs> is it is it a firsthand account from a certain witness? If, if there were if there were evidence one way if there were evidence that conclusively support the seduction hypothesis or conclusively refute it, um, what can we learn? Put us all on the couch here. What can we learn from the Lincoln's marriage that we can take to our own marriages, to our own relationship, into our own lives to make ourselves better people and better partners? 
Well, um, uh, I, I, one of the reasons I wrote my first book, um, The uh, Inner World of Abraham Lincoln, uh, was uh, to suggest uh, that Lincoln's uh, example as an inspirational figure is, is usually thought of as somebody uh, who comes from uh, an impoverished background um, and overcomes all kinds of adversity that are uh, attendant upon uh, economic poverty. One of the things that I wanted to suggest in that book, and indeed in, in uh, the big book, in the marriage book, and then in, in the big biography, um, is that Lincoln's triumph over adversity was not simply a matter of overcoming poverty, of economic poverty, but emotional poverty. That here he has his mother die when he's nine. He has a very unsympathetic father who treats him harshly and rents him out uh, as though he were a kind of indentured servant. Um, he loses his uh, older sister uh, when he's a teenager and she's just two, three years older. He loses his only brother in infancy. Um, his, his surrogate grandparents die at the same time his mother dies when he's nine. Uh, so he ha and, and he's given to depression. So, so serious that, as I su suggested earlier, on two occasions, uh, when he was in his mid-20s and again in his early 30s, he was, he was so depressed that his friends all feared that he was going to commit suicide. And they removed all sharp objects from his reach, lest he do himself in. Um, and then he has, he has a very uh, troubled midlife crisis from 40 to 45. He drops out of politics, devotes himself to the law, goes through a period of, of dramatic introversion and uh, self-examination and, and changes dramatically. Um, has this very difficult marriage, uh, loses children, you know, loses, he has four boys and two of those boys die, one when, uh, when Lincoln is, uh, is in midlife and then one in the White House, and his favorite son dies in the White House, that Lincoln had this enormous, uh, challenge psychologically and yet he overcame it and he became not just famous and not just effective but a kind of more a kind of model of psychological wholeness and stability and so and i've, I've had people tell me that uh, that they found this very cheering <laughs> that if lincoln was able to overcome the kind of uh hardship that he had to face emotional hardship as well as economic hardship uh that they too could could do it so that's what i hope um the marriage book suggests, and also the, the, the writings that I've done in general about Lincoln's life. Dr. Michael Burlingame, author of An American Marriage, The Untold Story of Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Evan. Certainly check out that book and his website, which is michaelburlingame.com. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.